Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 126. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Bless you, Father, tonight for bringing us together in like-minded fashion, for giving us a desire to seek your words, to seek for your truth, to, to seek for your understanding in the matter. Help us, Father, as we... Um, stumble along through the text, working our way from passage to passage as we do our little Bible study like we do week after week, we know that we don't have perfect understanding. And that's why we rely on your Holy Spirit, who has authored the text and who has made it come alive to us. He is the one who's not going to only explain it to us, but he's the one who's going to empower us to make practical application and so that we can implement the truths that we're reading about into our very lives, so that we can lead lives that are pleasing to you. And that is our goal. We study in order to do, like Ezra said, in order to teach others to do the same thing. Thank you, Father, for this challenge. Bless us as we um, uh, bless one another, as we seek to pray and, and support one another in, in our prayers, in our um in our, our well wishes in, in our um, sometimes in our financial support, um, the way we're helping one another as uh, brothers and sisters in Messiah. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to share with the communities uh, near and afar, uh, for, uh, both those who are local and as well as those who are around the world using this medium of the internet. I thank you for the tools that are made available to me, the YouTube, um, the iTunes, the podcast, the website, um, the emails, the, the, the comments, uh, on the YouTube videos, um, just so many different ways to reach out to people and make connections. Bless us where we are. Continue to raise us up and protect us and keep us safe during this pandemic. Give us a hope beyond hope. Help us to understand that you are still in control despite the um, confusion in our country over over the pandemic, over health, over um, vaccination, over uh, uh, politics, over um, race, uh, the tensions, and things like that, Lord. Um, we know that you are a God who has not vacated his throne, and so we'll look to you, we'll turn to you, we'll continue to study your words so that we can understand your heart, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Kehilat Nuva, the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. 
You can find us online at graftedin.com, like you can see on my screen right now. We invite you out to our congregation, both online as well as in person. We are meeting in person. Just make sure that you're aware of the guidelines that we're following to keep everyone safe. And of course, if you're uncomfortable um, meeting in person, then I invite you to uh, catch our uh, YouTube videos, which are available online. You can see my screen right now, picture of Pastor Mark there. He's going through this um, series, Navigating Through the Storm. He's in part two today, and you can click on the link there on our website to watch the videos after we upload them to YouTube. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at www.tetzetorah.com. You can find me online at T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I invite you to um, go online and avail yourself of all of the resources that I make available there for free. I'm, I'm just so delighted to be able to be in a position where God is blessing me to do research and to study and to um, record podcasts, so audio commentary, uh, written commentary, and then uh, as of the last five years or so, um, doing uh, video content on YouTube and uploading that and just making all that available for anyone who is seeking um, that type of uh, Bible study. So uh, there you have it. All those links are there for you. Um, make use of them as you see fit. I've also got a, um, a YouTube channel stop that. I've got a YouTube channel uh, at uh, www.youtube.com uh, forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. Go to my YouTube channel and browse around. Look at all the videos that I upload there. I, I looked back and I was like, wow, I actually upload something to YouTube six times a week and I upload something to uh, iTunes, the podcast, that remaining seventh day. So seven days a week I'm uploading something somewhere to some platform. So I'm quite busy. It's probably because I'm unemployed. Right? I've got all this free time to be able to, to look for a job, but at the same time I've got more free time to be able to focus on Torah study. So I'm, uh, it feels like I'm in full-time ministry. I just don't have the full-time pay to go along with it. But nevertheless, I'm blessed to be a blessing to, to um, uh, the people who are looking for this type of resource. So um, uh, please feel free to browse around my YouTube channel. Make sure you do four things for me, okay? And I'm going to add a fifth one one of these days. Four things. Number one, subscribe. Yeah, that puts you into the family. That puts you in the in the loop of when I'm uploading videos. In fact, I think it, uh, YouTube will alert you when, I, when you when I upload if you subscribe. Number two, hit the little bell for notifications. And it'll send you a notification to your YouTube channel, to your own YouTube um, uh, account or your Gmail account, I think, your Google account, um, as to when I'm uploading. Make sure you hit this, uh, the bell. Number three, um, uh, what is the third thing I usually say? Uh, uh, comment? No, that's not the third thing. I think, I, I think usually I say, um, hit, the, hit the, yeah, I think it is comments. Maybe it is comments. I'm, I'm forgetting what the third thing is. Subscribe, hit the bell, uh, something else. I just can't remember off the top of my head. But also you want to uh, comment. Ah, oh, thumbs up, thumbs up. That's the one I'm forgetting. Uh, it's on the screen right for me, right? Hit the little thumbs up because um, I think you're going to like my videos. I think uh, you'll like the content. Um, you might not, so hit the thumbs down if you don't like it. But I hope you hit the thumbs up. And then um, the fourth thing is usually to hit the little like button so you can share the content with uh, friends and family, share uh, with your with your other social media um, 
uh, accounts and things like that. And the fifth one, I'm going to add one of these days, put a little icon on there, a little little graphic on your screen, is um, uh, to uh, uh, make comments to the videos. You know, let me know what you like about them, what you don't like, and things like that. Alrighty, that'll do. That'll be enough for the YouTube um, plug there. Lastly, these are the live internet studies, and I join you week after week. Um, let me scroll down uh, from the live internet studies page off my home, off my uh, website, and uh, just give you the details about the live studies, and we'll jump right into them. As I mentioned, this is episode number 126. The recording date uh, that we're meeting for the live study right now is January 30th, 2020 USA date. So if you're in the U.S., it's the 30th, but if you're on my side of the world, I think it's already... No, it's the 31st, yeah. I don't think it is, but I know it is. Um, we meet each Saturday evening from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Sometimes we get a little shorter, but usually we go a little bit longer. That's just the way it works because I'm a long-winded guy. Um, we talk for 30 minutes on one topic, which is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're in part 44 of that particular study tonight. And we're just going to keep going through the notes, through the study, through the... Um, um, the topic until I reach the end, which I have no idea what that end is. I'm not in any particular hurry, so I just want to make this thorough. And then the second 30-minute uh, segment of our study is given over to our Shema study, which is a kind of a Trinity study. It's called Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 2, why HVH and Yeshua, or Hashem and Yeshua, or Adonai and Yeshua, or I can say Yahweh and Yeshua. We're in part 61 for that study night. And each week we go through different Bible verses and look at the triadic nature of those verses, um, things like that. We always have, always have a featured YouTube video, sometimes more than one, but we'll watch one tonight. Uh, and it's on the passage out of Genesis 18, 17 through 19, the promises of God. And as I always mention, just briefly, if you'd like to join us for these particular live internet studies, get access to Skype somehow, which these days it's really easy. If you have the group link for the presenter who's holding the, the study, like myself, if you can get the group link from that presenter, then you can join the Skype uh, study without having to subscribe to Skype, without having to install Skype, or without having to create a Skype account. Just get Skype and that'll make it easier. The thing you will need is the group link. And as I always mentioned, the easiest way to get it from me is to go to my website at tatesitor.com, scroll all the way to the very bottom in that black section at the very bottom where you can see some, some buttons and things like that. Click the button on the upper right that looks like an envelope. You can see right now on my screen, I've got this little arrow that says email button. That's my email address. Click that. It'll send me an email and just tell me you'd like to join the Skype classes and I'd be more than happy to share the Skype link with you. And as always, as I always mention, this is the place that you can find on my website, the easiest place to um, share with me if uh, the Lord is blessing you to be able to be a blessing to me. And I, what I'm talking about is financially. This is the easiest way to donate to my ministry. Click the yellow, little yellow donate button. And that's how you can share love with me uh, securely via PayPal using a credit card or a bank account or something like that. And as I always mention, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to Romans 14, Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. And tonight's going to be an interesting study. I'm a little bit animated, as you can tell, uh, because of uh, where I know I'm going to be going tonight. What I want to do is I just wanted to remind us that we're looking at Romans 14, and we're looking at different uh, bullet points related to um, the uh, discussions around this chapter. And if you look on my screen right now, I've got these uh, bullets pulled up. 
And we've been working our way through. Uh, I broke this chapter up into all these little bullet points myself. This isn't any particular um, literary breakdown of the chapter. I just broke these up into the different ways I'm interacting with the, the uh, uh, topics. We talked in about uh, Romans 14, one where Paul says, who are the weak in faith? And as far as I can ascertain, um, there are, in fact, there's no really agreed upon consensus of who the weak in faith are. There's kind of a predominant perspective that the weak in faith are actually Jewish uh, Christians who are um, uh, part of the believing community that Paul's writing to, but nevertheless, they still have a propensity or a proclivity or a preference or even maybe a superstition about keeping ceremonial and civil parts of the Torah, particularly like Sabbath-related, food-related, kosher issues, that type of stuff, so that their weakness is actually a weakness for not being able to accept the full freedom in Messiah that we have, freedom to break out of the Jewish uh, social norm of keeping Sabbath, to break out of that religious um, uh, requirement to keep kosher that Moshe, Moshe uh, handed down. We are free in Messiah. We're free from the law. We're no longer under that. This is the predominant Christian perspective of who the weak and the strong are, even though Paul doesn't say who the strong are, and, and he doesn't even use the word strong until we get to the next chapter. But that's the implied uh, weak. I think that's not the best way to to see the weak. Um, I think the weak are actually somebody else. We've talked about that and we'll continue to talk about that, but I want to mention it right now. And then we talked about the contrast between anything and vegetables. It's kind of a dietary issue there, which we're going to get into again when we get a little later on down into the chapter in, in verses 14 through 18. But verses 2 through 4, the contrast between ending and vegetables. Uh, you guys heard me say that I don't think that Paul is trying to uproot Torah, talking about dietary issues there. We're going to revisit that discussion um, in the next bullet point. Um, in verses 5 through 9, are Christians free to worship God any day of the week? We had a kind of a Sabbath versus Sunday discussion. I don't think Paul's trying to say that it's a vote-based um, decision that we should come to. You know, um, it is true Christians are free to worship God any day of the week. This is true, but is Paul saying that um, uh, tr Sunday trumps Sabbath? I I think it's highly unlikely that that's the case, even though that's the popular position. We're really parked out in this uh, uh, verses ten through thirteen. Who is the brother? And here's where I want to make a confession and ask for your apology as Bible students. I have been really pushing the um, the perspective that I think the brother, the Greek word Adelphos or Adelph, Adelphu or Adelph, Adelph, Delphon, depending on which case you're looking at, um, I have been really pushing this concept that the brother could include non-Christian Jews within Paul's purview when he's writing the letter that he's really wanting the, the, the his uh, small groups to consider that brother could include unbelieving Jews. And I say unbelieving, I mean non-Christian Jews. However, after um, prayer this week, after careful consideration, after restudying and just go back and looking at the, 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 the primary sources, that is the text, just um, doing a word study on my own through, of the word brother and it's, and it's different cognates and synonyms found throughout Paul's letter. I'm going to retract that particular line of reasoning because I don't think it's the strongest way to argue what I'm trying to get across. So let me make it uh, plain to those of you who are following this particular study. I don't want you to think of the brother as a non-believing Jew. I want you to think of the brother just the exact same way. <clears throat> Give me a moment here. 
exact same way that you've probably already heard it in standard Christian sermons and you're reading it in your, in your favorite Christian commentary uh, or you're studying it in seminary. The brother that Paul's writing to are Christians. And so I'm going to stand by that as the primary way of understanding who the brother is. He's absolutely writing to subgroups who are forming around the idea that Jesus is the is the Messiah of the Jews and of the world, but but most importantly for us Gentiles, uh, he's the Messiah that set us free, and he's the one that our groups are meeting for. He's the one. So Paul's writing to to Christian groups, and so brother means Christian, brother Christian. I will say this, and we're, we're going to keep working through this angle, that I still believe that these small groups are actually meeting within the larger Jewish communities. I don't I don't want to say that they're meeting in synagogues, but I do believe that they are they have this awareness of the unbelieving Jewish synagogue that's around them in whatever numbers they still um, uh, exist after the expulsion by Emperor Claudius. How many Jews remained in Rome? We don't know exactly for sure. There's some debate how many were expelled. Um, I'm of the belief that it wasn't the large number that was expelled. It's actually a more marginal number. Um, but nevertheless, we, we do know that the, the groups that are forming could not have formed groups that were completely independent of um, synagogue affiliation or Jewish affiliation based on Rome's policies of not allowing new religions, at least not until a, a little later on down the road when the emperors themselves adopted Christianity as a state religion and allowed for uh, Christians to have a little bit more religious freedom. But in Paul's day, when he's writing the letter in the, in the mid-50s, and of course... Um, the expulsion from Rome having of the Jews having taken place a little bit earlier than that. Most historians put um, Paul traveling to Rome probably around the 60s, and at least he was under house arrest for about two years um, before something happened. Maybe he was executed, or or the, the, you know how how things ended for him in Rome. Did he even did he actually even make it to 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 uh, where he was trying to go? But we know he. Um, uh, uh, visited Rome finally, but he's writing the letter before he visits. So it's like a five-year gap is what I'm trying to say. In the mid-50s, he wrote the letter, and then he finally makes it to Rome in, in the 60s. And how does this impact how many people were there and what their relationship was to the Judaisms that are around them? Those are the things we're trying to ascertain. So the brothers are Christians. They're Christian groups. But I believe they're working as subgroups of Jewish communities that were in existence at the time. In other words, Christianity was still um, in its in its infant stage. It wasn't. It wasn't. It didn't enjoy the, the the complete autonomy that it does today as a separate religious group with religious freedoms um, uh, recognized and allowable by Rome and things like that. So there's some some ways that we can understand that they're Christian groups, but they're working with the um, familiarity of Jewish communities around them, the influence, and in many ways, the protection of the Jewish communities and the freedoms that the Jewish communities enjoyed because Rome gave them those freedoms. So those, that's kind of the angle that we're working from. So I'm happy to admit um, my error because I, I'm like you, I'm a truth seeker. I'm a truth seeker. And so I just want to, um, uh, if I find an angle that I think is not the most helpful, then in my research, I want to go back and make those corrections. Uh, I'm sorry that I've um, not seen this angle a little earlier and not expressed it. In my mind, I always knew that the, that the brothers were Christians, but I just wanted to really push the idea that 
Paul knows that there are unbelieving Jews that are going to be um, interacting with his readers, his readership. To what extent, that's what we're trying to ascertain. And so I was trying to push that angle. I think it's kind of maybe a weaker angle to push. So um, just consider the brothers as Christians, and, and we'll, we'll be happy from there. But having said all that, um, let's consider uh, that uh, the uh, some of the things that help us understand the position that Mark Nanos is trying to get us to appreciate, which is that even though the groups were Christians, and that's who Paul is writing to, these home groups or subgroups were still known and recognized to have had a lot of interaction with the Jewish communities of their time, so much so that some of the language that's used throughout the Bible uh, is is uh, uh, indicative of this um, um how should we say, interaction between Jewish groups and Christian groups and the, 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 the dynamics of the socio-religious uh, um, friction that existed uh, between two groups who are claiming some type of legitimacy in the eyes of God. We left off last week with this reading out of Mark Nanos' book, The Mystery of Romans, that I'm borrowing my notes from. For this particular discussion, and I'll try to read some of this tonight. I hope to get through most of this. Um, as I mentioned last week, there's a list in, his, in chapter three where he talks about and he alerts us to the fact that that at times, even though Paul calls the believing group brothers, he's still operating out of this idea that we can have what what I think I'm getting this terminology from Mark Nanos, but I can't be certain. I can't remember where I got this. But from Paul's mind, there are brothers according to the flesh, which are natural-born Israelites, right? Fellow Jewish brothers. I would like to refer to those as external brothers from Paul's perspective. External to the Christian faith. They're external in the sense that they've not yet accepted Jesus as this messianic candidate. Maybe they're open to it. Maybe they're hostile to it. If they're hostile to it, then at some point in time, um, God's going to have to deal with them. You know, God is going to have to work on them. But if they're open to it, then Paul is going to want to dialogue with them. And we actually find Paul doing that in many, many cases throughout the book of Acts, going directly to the synagogue and holding discussions with these unbelieving Jews in hopes to win them to Christ. Okay, so those would be external brothers. But for Paul, he's a believer. He believes in Jesus. He knows that Yeshua is the Messiah. And he's come to this understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the groups that he's writing to are Gentile Christians and Messianic Jews, such as himself. And therefore, these brothers to Paul are internal brothers. So for Paul, there are two levels of covenant membership and two levels of brotherhood. There's internal uh, uh, brotherhood and internal or uh, covenant membership or spiritual covenant membership. And then there's limited or external uh, covenant membership and limited and external brotherhood. Uh, so that's what we're working from. Let's look at this list that Mark Nanos has uh, listed for us, uh, provided for us in his book. Uh, the following list features some of the many examples of Paul's parallel language in Romans when speaking of Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, and non-Christian Jews. You're going to have to go back and look at, look up these references on your own. Um, I don't have time to stop and read all of them, but just this is a, the list. It's not exhaustive, but this is what's nice is that this is concentrated in Romans. So look at this. On the left side, we have a column labeled Christians, and on the right side, we have a column labeled non-Christian Jews. And notice the similar language that Paul uses through throughout his letter to 
alert us today, we modern readers of the letter, to the fact that Paul had internal and external brothers to deal with. And I believe, like Mark Nonos is trying to alert us to the fact, that Paul wanted the internal brothers, the Christian brethren, to be aware of the external brothers that were brothers to Paul, according to the flesh, yes, but also there was this importance that um, the um, Christian brothers should uh, consider when uh, they tried to ascertain what their um, position was in salvation history as regards national Israel, unbelieving Israel, the external brothers. Are they to be con- still con- to be considered important in God's um, scheme of things? Are they, in fact, our brothers? I know they're not our brothers according to the flesh. They're not our ethnic brothers. But are they our covenant brothers all be somewhat distant because we believe in Jesus and they don't? Um, can we say that we believe in the same God? Well, yes, we do. Do we hold sacred the same scriptures? Well, yes, we do. What is the, the social dynamic of this us versus them? How far do we push it? Has God rejected them? Well, Paul says he hasn't. Has God given up on them? Well, Paul says he hasn't. So how do we work out the, work this out? And should we even care as Christian brethren? Look at this. The column on the left, as Christians, Paul says that the Christians are brethren. And this is just a few verses. In uh, 1.13 and 8.29, he calls the Christians as brothers. But in chapter 9, verse 3, he calls his external brothers, the Jews, according to the flesh, and he even qualifies it by saying according to the flesh, those are his brethren too. Now, they are to Paul because Paul's a Jew. But the question is, and the challenge, does Paul want his non ethnic Jewish brethren, the Christian Jew, the Christian Gentiles, does he want them to also consider the unbelieving Jews as covenant brothers in some sense? Now, they can't consider themselves as ethnic brothers, but could they be spiritual brothers in some way? I mean, we say they're Israel, they're natural Israel, and we're spiritual Israel, so aren't, don't we have a brotherhood in some level there? That's what we're trying to look at. Um, I won't read all the references. I'll just read the the, the, the labels. Um, Paul uses the phrase adoption as sons, or the concept of being adopted as sons, right? And he calls Christians, he refers to Christians in chapter 8 as being adopted as sons. And this is true. Abraham is our father. We'll get to that in a moment as well. So there's this relationship uh, of sonship and fatherhood. Uh, using Abraham as our father, and so we are sons. But we're also sons of God. And we'll look at that in a moment. But the non-Christian Jews have always enjoyed that label as adoption as sons. This goes all the way back into the uh, the the the, um, the Torah narratives of, of Exodus and Genesis and, and things like that. Genesis and Exodus. Israel is God's son, right? And Paul explicitly says so in chapter 9. Christians on the left-hand column are children of God. This is true. All genuine Christians are children of God. But, wait a minute, so are the non-Christian Jews. They're also children of God. And Paul was aware of this, and we should be aware of it too. Uh, look at Christians pertaining the glory or the, um, the, 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 the power that God is manifesting to us. We are recipients of this glory. We are witnesses of this glory. In chapter 8, verse 18, Paul talks about that, and he's addressing brother Christians. And yet, non-Christian Jews are also privy to the glory of God as being revealed to them, even though they did, they had eyes but couldn't see. Nevertheless, they were witnesses. It's to their, um, 
a, a, a shame that they didn't uh, understand the glory that was being revealed to them. But nevertheless, it was. It's, it's the same glory, the same God. Even Moses even understands that it was messianic. But the children of Israel didn't accept it. Let's keep going. On the left column, as Christians, Abraham is the father of all who share in the same faith that Abraham had. We can read about that way back in Romans chapter 4, where Paul goes to great lengths to explain to Gentiles that you don't need to convert to Judaism or change your status to um, Israelite, uh, your ethnicity, your affiliation, in order to be counted as the children of God and the children of Abraham. Abraham is your spiritual father. He is the father of all faithful Jews and Gentiles who walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had. I'm paraphrasing some of the terminology that uh, Paul used in Romans there. That's chapter 4. You can also likewise read about this, as I might interject, as we jump books, about the similar quality of Abraham as your father in Galatians chapter 3. Very good parallel passage to Romans chapter 4. I recommend reading those two uh, together in one setting, Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. Same theological uh, points that Paul's bringing up. But notice, and this is obvious to anyone who reads their Bible, that non-Christian Jews have always recognized Abraham as father, albeit, albeit Paul does make a clarification. He says, what do, we, what do we make of Abraham our father according to the flesh? In Romans chapter 10. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4. So it's interesting that he's writing predominantly to believers, but in Romans chapter 4, he turns and directly addresses the Jews of the group because he says, what should we say about Abraham our father according to the flesh? Well, that can only apply to directly to ethnic Jews, right? Because Jews, according to the flesh, his brothers, according to flesh, in Romans chapter 9, corresponds with Abraham, our father, according to flesh, in Romans chapter 4. But let's keep going. Christians are the seed of Abraham. If Abraham is your father, and you've been adopted as sons, sons of God, and sons of Abraham, then you are the seed of Abraham. And this corresponds with, of course, the Abrahamic promise and the Abrahamic covenant that God is going to bless Abraham and those who come after him, not just natural sons, but spiritual sons or or covenant sons. We could use that language instead of saying spiritual, if that sounds kind of spooky to you. So Paul addresses Christians, particularly the Gentiles, as the seed of Abraham. But wait a minute, wait a minute. He has always and should recognize that non-Christian Jews, even though they don't believe in Jesus, are in fact seed of Abraham, seed of Abraham. Although he qualifies that when it comes to adoption, I'm sorry, when it comes to election, which we'll look at later on, that just because you are physical seed of Abraham doesn't mean that you are part of the elect and that you will continue into the covenant promises of God. You have to have, you have to be within the grace of God, and eventually you have to personally accept the um, Son of God as your very own. But, but we can still recognize that, historically speaking, that a good number of physical descendants of Abraham should and must be counted as seed of Abraham, albeit from a natural perspective. Uh, Christians are beloved of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Non-Christian Jews are beloved of God, contextually. 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Christians are called. This is a language that Paul uses not just in Romans, but all over his his letters. Uh, Christians are called. Even here, Christians talk about that day. What is your calling? How were you called? But usually, by context, what Paul's referring to when he says called is something related to salvation. That is to say, brought out of 
of darkness and into redemptive um, relationship with God through uh, the sacrifice of his son Yeshua. That's what he means by call or calling. Today we don't use it that way as much in Christian circles, but nevertheless, Christians are called. But wait a minute, wait a minute, non-Christian Jews are also called. Yeah, same letter. <laughs> uh, Christians are the elect. I mentioned this earlier. Christians are the elect of God. God is in control of who he elects. And he doesn't have to answer to anyone for the choices that he makes. In fact, he makes choices within the same family sometimes. right? He elects Abraham to be pulled away from his, his family clan. And then within Abraham's family and offspring, he elects Isaac instead of Ishmael, and then from Isaac's loins, we got Jacob and Esau, and he elects Jacob instead of Esau, right? Twins from the same mom. And then within the clans of, of uh, Jacob, the sons of Jacob, he elects certain sons to carry on the, um, the preeminent uh, covenantal blessings and such. But the point is, God is the elector. He's the one that elects and he's the one that chooses who carries on the covenantal promises within any within any particular generation and so god elects gentiles we know that gentile christians are being brought into the family of god as elect of god because the very fact that they have come to um accept messiah uh is is demonstration of the holy spirit's work within them they join the elect as the very people of god but wait a minute wait a minute non-christian jews generally speaking from a broad covenantal perspective israel is god's elect elect nation set apart holy elected from all the other nations of the earth god elected israel so this is the paradigm for understanding oh, we have maybe a smaller context when we're talking about individual christians as far as these uh, labels but the broader larger uh, covenantal community that paul was already working from and that, and that existed in his day and indeed does still exist today are non-christian jews that is to say covenant israel national israel unbelieving israel right and then lastly um god foreknew that Gentiles will be brought to the place where they're at as brethren of believing Jews in certain places. But God also foreknew this about uh, non-Christian Jews, about them being in a place where they would be uh, unique to, to God's salvation program. So uh, Nanos goes on to say that the list could go on to include other clear parallels, like those just given the service in 9.4 and those called to service in 12.1, just as Paul is engaged in service in 1.9. And when speaking of election, us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles in 9.24. And even the continued continuity of relationship to the law and covenant right remember in, in romans 3 paul asks a rhetorical question do we then nullify the law based on the faith that we have and he answers in the strongest um negative that he can using the greek may it never be no 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 and no we do not nullify torah based on faith in fact, one should note that many of the phrases Paul uses in chapter 8 to describe the new status in Christ of those who believe, he turns around and describes immediately in chapter 9 to Jews who do not believe in Christ, certainly no mere coincidence, right? Clearly, 
Paul would have called Christian Gentiles brethren to non-Christian Jews and vice versa without any further consideration. For the one God of the nations was none other than the one God of historical Israel. So the, the point that, that uh, Nanos is trying to bring to our attention is that Paul didn't want the Gentile brothers who were Christians to think of themselves as separated from the people of God that were um, that were part of the salvation plan that God was bringing to pass. Here's the here's the way that um, Israel's place in the world and the Jews' place in the world impacted Paul most significantly was that Paul realized that God was doing a work in Israel, but he was using the Gentiles to bring Israel to that place of jealousy where they would desire, in a positive way, that which the Gentiles were now exhibiting or displaying, namely this this um, favored relationship with God as their father, Yeshua as their Messiah, and the Holy Spirit as the one who was empowering them. The Gentiles were doing all of this without having to undergo any change in their ethnic status or social status uh, from uh, Gentile to Jew. And this should bring Israel to a place to wonder, we want what these Gentiles have. They have what we believe the scriptures are foretelling is going to happen in the Achrit Hayamim, the end of days, right, in the age to come, when most of Israel understood that the nations would be brought into a, a proper relationship with God and with his Torah. Most Jewish people already believed that this was going to happen someday. What they were challenged was with the idea is that it was actually coming to pass before their very eyes, the future had invaded the present. In Paul's mind, the eschaton was on display for us at the very in, in front of our very eyes, although in seminal form, right, as a kind of in earnest. Um, the fullness hadn't come yet, but the fact that these Gentiles were turning from their pagan ways to God, something every religious Jew really actually desired, is something that Paul wanted them to be jealous of, to desire. Hey, don't you want to partake the pistol? participate in what God is doing now, not just wait till the end of days to participate in it then. And so the point we're trying to make is that the Jews needed the Gentiles to understand that God was bringing all of Israel to a place where Israel and the nations could worship God together. And we'll see this culminate in Romans chapter 15, where Paul uh, expresses his his, his uh, thoughts using uh, passages at the Tanakh, where he's explaining how Gentiles are praising God in the midst of the people, and the people that are in context are the Jews. But the point I'm trying to bring up for our study tonight is that um, Paul doesn't want the Gentiles of his reader of this letter to think that they don't need to even concern themselves with the Jewish people. In fact, why would he rebuke them so harshly in chapter 11 uh, or bring up the notions of, you know, if you think you're that, that you're boasting against the natural branches, you know, it's not you who's supporting them, they're supporting you, those types of things. Um, what is that rhetoric uh, even there for? If the um, Gentile brethren, the Christian brothers in Rome, weren't entertaining this idea that, you know, we're the majority, we're the strong. And I'm going to share with you another resource that I listened to this week, a podcast that has an entirely different take on strong in the week that I'd never considered, but after listening to it, I think has a lot of traction. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let me read one more um, uh a paragraph out of Nanos. Uh, he's working through these points of considering how uh, the our external brothers – 
are the the ones that I'm not writing to. I'm speaking as if I'm Paul. I'm not writing to my external brothers, the synagogue communities that are largely comprised of national Israel. But I want you Christian brothers of who I am writing directly to, the Christians, the Jew, largely Gentile communities with some Jews scattered here and there amongst them. I want you to be aware of the fact of the unbelieving Jews that you're probably going to encounter uh, here and there, some of them are probably in our groups, right? Every pastor knows that not everyone in his church, within his church walls, is a believer, and yet he still addresses everybody as he says, uh, "Saints, you know." And he stands up in the pulpit on Sunday morning and says, "Good morning, saints. You know, dearly beloved. You know, uh, good morning, Christians." He, he knows that not everybody's a Christian. He knows that everybody's a part of the beloved and the saints. But he addresses everybody that collectively. We could use that in Paul as well. I'm sure Paul knows that not everybody who's reading his letter and, and meeting in these church groups is a true believer, but to the degree that they are professing faith in Messiah as a group, then the word uh, brother applies to them as in the Christian sense of the word. Paul regarded the practices of non-Christian Jews as the result of faith and therefore unquestionably accepted acceptable to God. Remember, um, he reminds us, he would naturally have urged the same respect from the strong in Rome. Quote, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Right? That's where this whole thing got started. Who is the weak in faith? This deep respect runs throughout the entire context of Paul's instruction, not only in chapters 14 and 15, but it is the very point of chapters 9 through 11, which in my opinion is one of the strongest uh, parts of Paul's letter where we understand this dynamic between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, believing Christians, believing Gentiles, and, and, and perhaps unbelieving Jews is in chapters 9 to 11 where he writes quote for i bear them witness that they have a zeal for god who is the the, the they who is the they well go back and read it for yourself the they that paul's referring to are non-christian jews who have a zeal for god which nano's remarks is often missed in the haste to get to but not in accordance with knowledge right so in chapter 10 paul speaks of his external brethren those who have not accepted Jesus as Christ, as having a zeal for God. So you have to stop and ask yourself, is zeal for God good? Yes. Is a zeal for God but not according to knowledge good? Well, probably not. You want to have zeal for God, but you don't want to have zeal for God but not according to knowledge. There's a limit. But to the degree that we can describe having a zeal for God and having uh, be, being in a place where God's... Um, uh, words can be heard, God's voice can be heard, God's words are being read and studied. To the degree that we can describe that as a good thing, a measure of grace, so then we would say that having a zeal for God is a positive quality that any particular group should have, especially if we're just comparing it to the exact opposite, right? Um, we could have people who are just absolutely not interested in God. Many secular Jews today right, uh, are simply not even interested in God. There's no zeal for God at all. Their heart has simply grown cold. And so we would want to express the idea that that's a bad thing. So, But Paul is saying, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. right? This seems to be a positive uh, quality that he's trying to describe about these external brothers. The, the practice in question are Jewish practices, dietary customs, and calendrical observances that predate the coming of Jesus Christ and that Paul tells the strong to respect because they are done for the Lord and to God and are accepted by the Lord and by God and for those who do them and are the Lord's, verses 3-8. through eight. 
of chapter 14. Uh, Nanos goes on to say, interestingly, in the first eight verses, mention of Christ is completely absent. The focus is on God and on the Lord, although equivocally speaking, we could say that the Lord is probably Yeshua in some of those cases, um, but God is definitely the Father. Um, Paul's not calling Jesus God just yet in this part of his letter. Um, but he perhaps is using the word Lord there uh, in a kind of an, an equivocation kind of meaning a, a slightly ambiguous could go either way to refer to either Yeshua because that word Lord, kudios in the Greek, had already been applied to God the Father in the Old Testament, but now it's being used widely in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. Phrases that are inclusive of non-Christian Jewish faith also. So you have to remember that uh, term, terminal, uh, from a terminology perspective, Paul can use terminology that could apply to non-Christian Jews. And so sometimes we lose sight of that. And then lastly, um, the last thing I'll read uh, uh for tonight, let me see how far this goes. Is uh, he talks about um, also there is an, an implicit recognition that the weak and the strong regard each other, serving different masters. In verse four, that Paul challenges in making his point that they are wrong, right? For both are serving and therefore accepted by the same Lord, and that's a very stick, a strong sticking point that we also need to walk away with. In the in the um, effort to demonstrate that the weak in faith don't have to be Christians, that the weak in faith could in fact be non-Messianic Jews or non-Christian Jews, um, we have to remember that if these non-Christian Jews are serving their Lord, which is God, and Christians, Gentiles, and Christian Jews are serving their Lord, which is God, well then the commonality is that the, that they're both saving, serving the same Lord, which is God, and they're both accepted by the same Lord, which is God. The difference is that there are times when Paul specifically talks about Christian uh, brothers' uh, devotion to Jesus as their Lord, and of course that's where we're going to make a, a differentiation from non-Christian Jews. All right, so enough on that particular resource. Let me um, just make you aware of, and let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, and just show you what I listened to uh, this week uh, in closing to this particular part of my study. One of my um, uh, live internet study, my Skype uh, students, uh, who's with me tonight in my study, um, he alerted me to this resource, and I wanted to share it with those of you uh, who are watching this video as well. Bible Project at BibleProject.com is known for putting together a, um, a very interesting set of YouTube videos uh, called The Bible Project. They're not known for their podcasts as much as they are for their YouTube videos, which are a little more um, well-known. But they do have a podcast. And I've got their podcast pulled up right now. They have a study that they're doing uh, 10 episodes called The Family of God. And if you scroll down into that page, you can see that the whole theme uh, that they've been going through is the family of God, uh, God's global family, God's cl our collective identity. What's so bad about ba Babel? Abraham the immigrant and circumcision, sibling rivalry and biblical election, Jesus and the Gentiles. Who's in? The powerful and not powerful. One family once more, and then finally coming soon, why do Cain's descendants show up after the flood? And so this is a great Bible study. Uh, it's highly recommended, although as far as I can tell, they don't take a messianic approach. That is a pro-Torah perspective that 
teaches, like I do, that the Torah is actually still relevant for Jews and Gentiles and Messiah and should even be followed from a covenantal obligation perspective. I don't think they take that approach. I'm pretty sure they don't. Nevertheless, they have a lot of good things to bring to the discussion uh, that we can all agree on. And one of the things that I really appreciated, so I'm giving kudos to my fellow study buddy in the in the chat room with me, in the Skype room with me right now who's listening to uh, my study, he brought this up to my attention. Their study, episode number eight, the powerful and the not powerful, they have a perspective where perhaps when Paul says weak and strong, that the weak are actually Christian Jews who, because of their ethnicity as Jews, were considered not powerful from a social perspective in Rome, owing to the fact that many Jews, we don't know exactly how many, were expelled by Emperor Claudius before Paul wrote this letter. And so from a social perspective, they would have been the, 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 the marginal ones, the disenfranchised ones, who were work, kind of working their way back into Rome, but yet had not gained any type of strong social status among the other Romans. Whereas the Gentiles, who were not expelled because of their ethnicity, these Gentile Christians would have been in a position where they were the powerful from a social standing. And so Paul wants the Gentiles, who were the predominant uh, readership of his letter— um, that's not argued, right? I'm not arguing that. He want, but um, from this Bible Project author's perspective, the powerful is another way of saying the strong, and the not powerful is another way of saying the weak. And I like that angle. I like that. I think that has some traction. Uh, I like that uh, because it alerts the powerful, i.e. the strong, to the fact that Paul doesn't want them to use their position of power to just mow over those in the group who are less powerful, those who are disenfranchised, those who are suffering because of something that was out of their control, perhaps. They all got it, you know, how many Jews got exiled? Again, that's debatable, but the fact that the exile did take place is not debatable. It's it's history. Uh, even Luke records it in the book of Acts that, that the Jews were expelled from Rome. How many were expelled? That's, again, open for debate, and we can talk about that a different day. However, the point that they were expelled and that they had to work their way back into Rome as Jews is something that probably didn't escape Paul's readership and didn't escape Paul's um, authorship. So Paul wants these groups to work with one another because they're both brethren. They're both Christians, remember? I want you to think of the brothers as Christians like you probably already did until Ariel tried to challenge you for the last few weeks of thinking of the brothers as not Christian Jews. Shame on you, Ariel. What were you thinking, right? That's not a very good angle. So nevertheless, Paul's writing to Christians, writing to brothers, and he wants the powerful brothers and the not powerful brothers, aka the strong and the weak respectively, to work together with one another and to realize their scope and their their uh, position in this big family of God and to reconcile to one another under the banner of Messiah. We're one family, right? One We're, we're diverse, but we're one family. And so um, I liked that angle. I, re- I especially enjoyed it. It's about an hour-long podcast. Give it a listen. Give it a thumbs up. Again, you don't have to be a pro Torah perspective to appreciate the truths that they're bringing there. And so I like that angle. I, I like that powerful. I'd never heard anyone describe this weak and strong that way. I don't agree with everything they, every conclusion they come to, but I thought that that was one that was worth highlighting. So with that, let's draw our particular Romans 14 study to a close. 
Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's take about 15 or 20 minutes to look at this particular part of my study. This is section two. We, we spent a little bit longer on the uh, Romans 14 study where I'm trying to do a little bit damage control uh, after telling everybody that the, 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 the brethren are, are, uh, could include non-Christian uh, Jews. <laughs> no, just just... Think of them as Christians like you always thought. That's who the brethren typically is referring to. But don't forget that Paul was um, uh, still had his external brothers in view and that he wanted the Christians to be aware of their place in salvation history and then their responsibility to unbelieving Jews to continue to reach out to them with the gospel. That doesn't change. And that there were going to be unbelieving Jews that Paul's going to encounter, that Christians, Gentiles would encounter as they hold their meetings. Perhaps some were going to be in their midst. That's also likely true. I'm not going to change my position on that. But let's look at the study on the exploring the issues, uh, exploring the uh, Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Tonight we're going to be looking at um, uh, this idea of God the Father being all-knowing, God the Son, a.k.a. Yeshua, being all-knowing, and God the Holy Spirit being all-knowing. We'll look at three passages, and they won't be too terribly difficult to understand. This will be an easy part of my study. Some of these um, uh, passages are easier to defend than others. Calling Yeshua all-knowing uh, when he's uh, he's 100% human is a little more difficult to grasp, but we'll look at it nevertheless. Remember, this is a chart put together by Carm. I didn't make this chart up my, on my own, but we're working from this particular chart as we work our way through these Trinity studies. So we're going to be looking at 1 John 3:20 under the column known as God the Father. Under the column for the Son, we'll be looking at John 16.30 as well as John 21.17. And we're going to bounce that off of Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13 when it comes to um, kind of a little bit of pushback of Yeshua being all-knowing. And then for the column under the Holy Spirit, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 2. 10 and 11. And what we're trying to come to, to the conclusion is that there are passages laced throughout the Bible that lead us to the conclusion, the best practices conclusion, although there are other ways to read different passages and there are equivocations laced throughout the Bible, places where there are ambiguities, where passages could be read two different ways, depending on lack of you know information or information withholding, what we call... Um, uh, um, a uh, uh, um, uh, merely an apparent contradiction of McCrew, based on Dr. Anderson's perspective, that we have apparent contradictions but not true contradictions. They're simply apparent because we have information withholding or information limitation. But what we should be able to come to the conclusion is that there's one God being spoken of throughout the unified scriptures. There's one being known as God, but that he's complex in his nature, so much so that he's represented by three different persons who have their own unique identity as persons, but have the same identity as deity. That's what we're trying to work from. So let's just work through this. Let's just jump right into it. First passage is 1 John 3.20, which reads right here, quote, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Why? Because he knows everything. All right, very simple, to the point. John is trying to let us know that God is all-knowing. And I don't know of a single Christian Unitarian or Trinitarian who would argue otherwise. God knows everything. He doesn't lack in any amount of understanding. So that's an easy one to establish. God knows everything. So let's just keep going. In John 16, starting in verse 30, we have a statement from John 
that could be read a few different ways. So let me read the verse and then I'll explain. John says, now we know that you know all things. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And so this is Yeshua having this discussion with his disciples. And he's talking about using parables and figurative speech and things like that. If you go back and read the passage in John 16 to get the context, um, Yeshua even says, I've, ta- I've spoken to you in figures of speech, but the hour is going to come when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I'll tell you plainly about my Father. Um, and it's within that context that he said that the, the disciples respond to him in verse 30. Ah, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, right? So interestingly, if we were simply to say that according to what the disciples say, Yeshua knows everything, well, then this would equate him with God who already knows all things, that every good Jew would agree with that God knows all things. But those of us who are Trinitarians and realize that Yeshua is 100% God as well as 100% man, would probably not push the point that Yeshua knows everything as a human. But aside from that, let's continue down this idea that Jesus as God knows all things. Let's look at another passage in the same book just a few chapters later. In John 21:17, Yeshua, this is the resurrected Yeshua now, so this is a little different. In John 16, it's his pre-resurrection body. So perhaps we can make a case that Jesus, the 100% human pre-resurrection, knows all things, but it's probably limited from a human perspective. But as God, he knows all things. Yeah, that part of his nature is all-knowing. But the human part of him has knowledge limitations, just like all of us do. But notice in John 21, it's slightly different. It's a different Yeshua. From an, from a physical perspective, he's post-resurrection. His body has changed. How much knowledge does he have now? We could pose the question. Let's look at the dialogue here. He and Peter are having this discussion. He, Yeshua, says to Peter, right? It's much to Peter's kind of dismay and, and kind of um, discomfort. He says to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Right? And Peter's a little grieved. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And what does Peter say to Yeshua? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, is this just rhetorical? You know, like I might say to my wife, Honey, I love you. And she might say to me, You, and oh, I'm sorry, Honey, I love you. Do you love me? (laughs) And she might say to me, you silly goose, you know I love you. You know everything. You know I love you, right? Maybe it's just with rhetoric. Maybe it's just wording. You know, it's just romantic language that Peter and the Lord are using with one another. You know everything, Lord. You know that I love you. But maybe it's a little more than that. Yeshua has a resurrected body. Maybe he does know everything now. Okay, you know, that's a little different. So it's with that context that we can begin to have this interesting discussion that um, if Yeshua knows everything, then how come, everyone already knows this verse, in Matthew 24, Yeshua's having this discussion about the end times. And he's talking about the signs that are going to precede his coming and the end of the age and things like that. And he talks about all these signs in heaven and things on the earth and the tribulation and all this stuff. And then it's within that context in verse 36, he's talking about the day of the Lord and tribulation and the day of his coming and things like that. Of that day of his second coming, he says in verse 36 of chapter 24, Matthew, quote, but concerning that day, 
right? The day of the Lord, which is marked by uh, trouble for the wicked and redemption for the righteous. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven, nor the Son, which is Yeshua, but the Father only. Now, wait a minute. Is this pre-resurrection um, or post-resurrection? Well, it's pre, so perhaps we can say he has pre-resurrection body limitations like all of us do, and therefore he doesn't know everything. He says only the Father knows all of these things. The Son doesn't know. So how do we reconcile Matthew 24, 36 with John 16, uh, 30, where um, uh, a disciple said, now we know you know all things. <laughs> all right, so that's that's one of the first pushbacks that many people are going to have to saying, yeah, Jesus doesn't know everything. He's a human. He had information limitation, just like all of us as humans do. But wait a minute, in John 21, it was post-resurrection. His body was different. He could do things that ordinary humans can't do. Maybe his limit, his maybe he got a memory upgrade, you know what I'm saying? Maybe he knew more now as a post-resurrection human than he did with pre-resurrection. Likewise, uh, sister or parallel passage to Matthew 24 is Mark chapter 13, um, where uh, Mark records uh, same context, same discussion, in time discussion. Mark records in Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So it's it's nearly identical. Um, you know, about who knows uh, about uh, what's going on concerning that day. It's, like I said, it's, uh, I, I think it's almost word for word. I'd have to go back and look at the Greek and see. But the point we're trying to bring up is that at least to the extent that Yeshua was 100% human, he confesses that he didn't know everything. At least he didn't know the day that he was going to return to planet Earth. Although we do have John recording that, Peter said, Lord, you know everything, and this is a post-resurrection body, so perhaps it's a little bit more than just a romantic rhetoric where he says, you know everything, you know, I love you, you know, maybe it's a little bit more than that, but maybe it isn't. We don't want to read too much into the text. So that's the part on Jesus knowing everything. And now let's turn to the uh, last one, which is easy to argue. Again, every Trinitarian and Unitarian would probably agree with the same um, a conclusion reached by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Right? You can go back and catch the context uh, earlier. Um, I don't need to uh, bring it up now about the, uh, uh, what Paul's talking about, but you can go back and read about it earlier uh, on your own. But he says in verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Why? For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then listen, he continues, For, in verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? And from that argumentation, that line of reasoning, Paul can state, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We've already established that God knows everything. And every good Trinitarian and Unitarian agrees that God has no limitation in knowledge. He has no information limitation. He knows everything. Therefore, if the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God, and if God knows everything, then it concludes that the Spirit also knows everything, because the Spirit comprehends the thoughts of God, which are limitless. 
I think everyone would agree there that the Spirit of God knows everything as well. So that's our look at the triadic passages or trinity passages, not really triadic, I should say. My definition of triadic passage is a passage that's meant, that mentions Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, in some way, shape, or form in, in one um, statement from Paul or from some other Bible uh, uh, author. That's a triadic passage. These aren't triadic passages. These are just passages where we're looking at uh, this idea of, of uh, God as a trinity. So with that, we we can uh, close our discussion on exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And next week, uh, we'll be poised to look at uh, this particular set of, of uh, uh, verses where we look at it's God the Father who sanctifies us as believers. It's God the Son who sanctifies us as believers. It's God the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us as believers. Who sanctifies us? God, the Son, or the Spirit? The answer is yes. We'll look at that next week, okay? Let's turn to the liturgy. I've got a passage out of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 9 through um, 9 through 14, and I wanted to read all of those. I'm thinking I don't want to read all of this tonight. I want to read these a different day. I'm just going to lurch you to, I'm going to whet your appetite by um, reading maybe just verse 9 and... Uh, ten, and we're entertaining this idea that we're you know we're in this discussion in Romans fourteen about the um, ongoing validity of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring, and whether or not it's it's helpful for Gentile brothers, right? Those brothers who are believers, <laughs> that Greek word Adelphos, who are the brethren? Well, they're Christians. I'm just going to keep kind of uh, uh, um, uh, scolding myself for for not pushing that perspective earlier, so I apologize. My apologies. Sincerely, my apologies. All all humor set aside. Please forgive me for not um, uh, sharing that perspective more clearly than before. Um, again, I always knew it. I was just trying to work an angle that I just didn't really pan out, and I was getting a lot of pushback, and rightfully so, because I was working angle that's probably kind of weak. But um, if the believing uh, readership in Rome, like Paul's writing to, are Gentiles, the majority of them, then what do we make of the Abra- the, the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and the offspring? Is this an everlasting covenant, or has it been upended by Christ's new covenant, by the um, promises that Messiah brought to us? Did Paul bring the did Paul teach that Jesus brought the Torah to an end? Did the Abrahamic covenant likewise come to an end, especially with its uh, earmarks of physical circumcision? What do we make of all that? So we're going to just look at this. We'll look at this liturgy next week as well. But let me just read two passages tonight. Genesis 17, 9 and 10. We'll just read those two verses. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. Now, if you just stop and look at the face value of this passage, seems to me that as long as there are Jewish people or Israelites in the earth, and I'm using Israel and Jewish uh, synonymous in this uh, application, although it's not synonymous across the board, but in this particular application it is, as far as we can tell, the Abrahamic covenant is still in force to the degree that there are still Israelites on earth today. Therefore, the covenant that God made with Abraham is still in effect because it says throughout their generations. Verse 10 even makes it a little bit more explicit. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So we've got physical circumcision among the males of the Abrahamic family. It is no secret that 
uh, covenant membership is marked out in this passage by physical circumcision of the males among this particular family group. And so the question that we could ask is, has God given up on this promise to Abraham and the establishment of his covenant to Abraham's offspring? I hope you say no. I hope you say no, that God has not given up on them, right? Remember Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to tell us that what should we say according to Abraham our father, according to the flesh? And then later on in the passage, he's making an application that this same Abraham who was counted as righteous in God's sight before he was physically circumcised, recall Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is also the father of faithful Gentiles who have followed in the footsteps of faith for Abraham. So Abraham is our father according to the flesh, and he's our father according to the spirit, or if you want to say according to the uh, uh, internal heart covenant that, that applies to Gentiles who follow in that same faithful footstep. So he's according to the external and according to the internal according to limited covenant membership and according to lasting covenant membership, however way you want to describe that. Let's look at the Hebrew real quick. Over in verse 9, uh, uh, the Hebrew says, Abraham et briti tishmorata acharecha ledoratam. Verse 10 says, Zot briti, this is the covenant. This is my covenant, literally, briti. Zot briti asher tishmuru beini uveinechem uvein zalacha acharecha himolachem kol zachar. And there's not a lot of, of um, insight into the Hebrew that one needs to uh, investigate to, to properly understand the English. It's well, it's it's uh, properly under, uh, represented by most English translations, so there's nothing really there. I need to say this word could be better translated as that or something like that. So that'll be the um, reading from the Torah section out of the Hebrew. Let's turn now to immediately look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, where at a face value level, Paul seems to be upending physical circumcision, the very thing we just looked at in Genesis chapter 17. But I won't go into it now. I'll just read the first three verses out of this particular section, and we'll read more of this as we go, as we can develop the challenge that's before us. Was it was Paul against physical circumcision for Gentiles? Well, yes and no. It's a longer discussion for a different day. But suffice to say for now, we shouldn't read this as an abrogation of the Abrahamic covenant. That's not the way to read these passages. But look at what they say. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Again, notice he's speaking to believers, right? Those brothers. He has set us free. So his context is believers, both Jew and Gentile. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is the slavery? We can talk about that a different day. Verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. At the very least, we can say that the slavery of verse 1 is related to circumcision, which is mentioned in the next set of passages. So we know there's a relationship between the slavery and circumcision. What is the relationship? Again, I will uh, save that for a different day, but I can recommend that you go back and watch my video sec, uh, uh, series on what's bothering Paul, which is available at my website, tatesatora.com. It's also available at my YouTube uh, channel, YouTube uh, uh, channels of YouTube videos, and uh, there's a playlist for um, what's bothering Paul. It's a study on the book of Galatians. Verse 3 says, 
I'm sorry, verse 2 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3 says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. So whatever the slavery is that he's talking about in verse 1, it is directly related to circumcision and how one relates to circumcision and things like that. And we'll talk about that on a different day, like I said. Let's look at the Greek. Uh, the uh, Verse 1 says, Tea Lutheria, humas, I'm sorry, hemas Christas, eleutherosin, steketi unkai me palen zugo duleas in a keste. Verse 2 says, Ide ego palas lego human hati in peritem nesta, Christas humas uden o felase. And verse 3 says, Marturumai de palen panti anthropo, peritem nameno, hati that'll be the liturgy for tonight let's turn to the short little video that i've got prepared for us and it's on uh, uh genesis 18 17 through 19 and it's entitled the promises of god and after the video we'll simply close in a word of prayer okay Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Tor Teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. The Torah comes alongside of the promise, which is covenant status, and acts as a guarantor that the individual will also achieve behavioral righteousness, thus placing him or her on a direct collision course with the blessings of Hashem. Far from frustrating the grace of God, Torah complements the grace of God. What makes Avraham such a great role model of faith is that not only did he trust in the word of Hashem, but also the Lord saw into his future and predicted that his offspring would also be taught how to trust in the Almighty. Adonai said, Should I hide from Avraham what I am about to do, inasmuch as Avraham is sure to become a great and strong nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by him? For I have made myself known to him, so that he will give orders to his children and to his household after him to keep the way of Adonai, and to do what is right and just, so that Adonai may bring about for Avraham what he has promised him. The divine tandem-like actions spoken of here must not be taken too lightly. Look at these bullet points. Firstly, God promises to be faithful to make himself known to us. Secondly, we like faithful Abraham are then enabled and subsequently covenant-bound to obey the teachings of our heavenly Abba. And finally, such teachings are uniquely designed to bring about a righteous behavior in our lives, aligning our lives to be the object of God's righteous promises. Furthermore, we must like faithful Abraham trust in the Lord against all unbelievable odds to perform in our lives the promise that he has given given to us through Yeshua, our Messiah. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close on a word of prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. 
I thank you for the truths that have been revealed to us through your Son, through the Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for preserving your words. Thank you for giving us a reason to hope, a better hope than what is in front of us, a more blessed hope that we can be assured of is going to come to pass. For we indeed have the promises that have been recorded for us in the pages of your word, preserved by the very Spirit of God himself. We know that they are sure. Thank you, Lord, that it is because of your faithfulness to your Father's commands, that we can stand justified before you, that we can stand before you righteous. It's not because of works that we've done. It's not because of our status as Jews or Gentiles. It is because of the finished work of Messiah. Blessings be to his name. Thank you that you are drawing us close to you, that you're preserving us, that you're safeguarding our, the knowledge of the truth, that you're giving us a, um, a reason to be able to share our testimony with those around us, and that you're protecting us from the pandemic and that you're uh, giving us a testimony that we can share with those that might ask, what, what's different about you? I mean, the world is just spinning out of control, you know, economically and politically and, and uh, socially and, and, and uh, you know, everything's just going just crazy. But you, you have this joy about you and I can't put my finger on it. What is that? Give us holy boldness to be able to share with them a perspective that has God as our anchor, that has the Word of God as our surety, that has Messiah as its center. Uh, thank you for raising us up as families. Go with us this week uh, and bring us back together next week, uh, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 